Hi, I'm Dr. Amy Robbins, and welcome to Life, Death, and the Space Between podcast. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and medium, and here we explore life, death, consciousness, and what it all means. So if you've been listening to my show for a while, you know there's some guests that just I get overwhelmingly excited about, and Mark Epstein is one of those. Mark is an MD and psychiatrist in private practice in New York City and the author of a number of books about the interface of Buddhism and psychotherapy, including Thoughts Without a Thinker, Going to Pieces Without Falling Apart, Going on Being, Open to Desire, Psychotherapy Without the Self, and The Trauma of Everyday Life. His newest work, the Zen of Therapy, Uncovering a Hidden Kindness in Life is out now. He received his undergraduate and medical degrees from Harvard and is currently clinical assistant professor in the postdoctoral program in psychotherapy and psychoanalysis at New York University. Hi, everybody. This month, I'm asking for your support on Patreon. So if you haven't had a chance yet, Um, to listen to my first episode of the year, go ahead and take a listen to that. And I explain a little bit more about why I am so passionate about Patreon. And one of the experiences that I had this past December with some of my patrons, where we had a one hour Zoom call, we were able to chat about everything and anything they wanted to talk to me about. And it was an amazing experience, I think for them, but certainly for me as well. So please head on over to Patreon and help support the show. You can give any amount, five, 10, $20. You can give less than that, but any little bit helps in supporting life, death, and the space between. Also make sure you're following me on Instagram at Dr. Amy Robbins. And if you are interested in receiving my newsletter, which has biweekly soul wisdoms, please head on over to dramyrobbins.com and subscribe to my newsletter. Lastly, I'm still taking ghost stories for this year. So if you have a ghost story to share, please send that to team at dramyrobbins.com and I will be excited to share it on my show. Another two-part episode today with Dr. Mark Epstein talking about his book, The Zen of Therapy. Uh, These conversations are just too good for me to, to... shut down at 30, 35 minutes, which is normally the length that I like to keep my podcast. So today you will, I will split up this podcast. Today is part one. And then in just a few days, you will hear part two. So please make sure to listen to both, um, particularly the end of part two has some really, really juicy, juicy goodies. So um, again, the Zen of therapy. Welcome. Can I call you Mark? Welcome, Mark. Call me Mark. You can definitely call me Mark. (laughs) Thank you so much for being here. As I said to you before we got started, this is such an honor for me to be able to talk to you. I've admired your work in the field for years and I'm just excited to kind of to, to dig into some of the tenets you talk about in this beautiful book, which is really, um, Oh, a way. I think at one point I didn't write this down in my questions, but you said psychotherapists are voyeurs and um, I forget what what the gossips. other gossips. Yes, and I was like, part shoot. gossip, part voyeur, part, part gossip, part voyeur. I'm like, shoot, I'm out it. Like that is, <laughs> um, you know, so much of what we do is we get to peek into people's lives and see more than peek. We get to journey in their lives and see what they're struggling with. And this book really does such a beautiful job of allowing us into the life of 
several of your patients over the course of a year's time to look at what they're struggling with. So I want to start with the question about what do you feel like helps people heal the most in therapy? Um, what do I feel like helps people heal the most in therapy? Um, well, I think therapy is what helps people heal the most in therapy. Mm -hmm. you, you know, when, when therapy is functioning as it can, you know, as um, uh, uh, I, I like to use the word, uh, hold the words holding environment, you know, when therapy functions as a holding environment, uh, which means that anything that somebody wants to talk about, needs to talk about, does, doesn't want to talk about, but needs to talk about, anything can be spoken uh, if the therapeutic alliance, if the therapeutic relationship is strong enough. I think that's what's healing about therapy. Uh, that's one way of putting it. Um, uh, I also think of therapy as like a spiritual friendship. Mm. So uh, I think that that aspect of uh, a very particular kind of friendship, whatever spiritual friendship might actually connote for a given individual, that that might also be a way of answering the question about what's healing. And you tie these pieces together beautifully. And I'm curious, as someone who it took a long time for me to speak about my experiences, for you, what was it like kind of walking parallel paths in both psychotherapy and Buddhism. And then at what point did it feel like the two really worked beautifully together and, and should go hand in hand, frankly, as, as after I read the book? Well, the, the thing about me that I think is rather unique is that uh, uh, although I'm a, you know, a Western trained psychiatrist, Harvard Medical School, et cetera, et cetera, um, I got way interested in Buddhism and in meditation practice, in mindfulness, in Vipassana or insight meditation uh, <clears throat> before I knew very much about anything else. Certainly before I took pre-med courses, before I decided to go to medical school, I spent about seven years as immersed as I could possibly be in the Buddhist world, sitting, you know, two, uh, two weeks silent mindfulness retreats, traveling to Asia with various teachers of mine who I was lucky enough to meet when I was 20, 21 years old. So uh, I took all that uh, with me when I entered the quote unquote straight world. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. when I went to medical school with the express desire to become a psychiatrist. And I think I was one of only maybe two people in my entire class who wanted to be a psychiatrist, you know. Yeah, it's not Everyone the most else. desirable no, coming like, out of med school. Ophthalmology or dermatology, <clears throat> if you want a good lifestyle, or cardiology or surgery or internal medicine or neurobiology, you know. Uh, but I wanted to be a psychiatrist. And... Um, uh, and, but I was already deeply influenced by Buddhism, deeply interested in it. So as I began to learn about uh, what it was going to take to be a therapist, and I had very good teachers, um, I, everything they taught me, I was looking at through a Buddhist lens. So r right from the beginning, I wanted the two worlds to work together because I needed both of them. Mm -hmm. I, I needed therapy and I needed meditation. And I felt in myself, oh yeah, these things, they're not at odds. They're like, you know, they're both doing their best to help me and I, and, uh, and I needed help, you know? So, um, 
so when I started actually being a therapist, I was all, always drawing on both traditions as best I could, because I think a good therapist, uh, that's what they do. They draw on what has helped them, re really. You're just bringing your own experience. Um, so, uh, and then I started writing, uh, which was a whole other endeavor, um, writing basically to try to translate, in my mind anyway, translate or interpret Buddhist psychological thought into Western psychodynamic language. Um, but in, in order to do that effectively, I discovered, I mean, I wasn't a writer, I didn't think of myself as a writer, but I discovered that if, the more I used my own experience to try to illustrate what I was talking about, the more accessible the writing was. So uh, in my early books, I, I tapped a lot of what it was like for me to be a patient in therapy you know, mm -hmm. like my dreams of my teeth crushing on themselves and, you know, uh, being in the psychotherapy office for the first time as a patient. And um, and then I started writing about being on retreat, like like what what is the meditative experience actually doing for me? Mm. And, I, and I, I wrote about, uh, you know, uh, being on retreat and wishing that I could have a piece of toast to eat. And then finally, they brought the toast out on the on the last day of the retreat, and I and I prepared it and sat down and ate it very ate the first bite very mindfully, and the next thing I knew, the toast disappeared because my mind had wandered, <laughs> and I was like, "Who ate my toast?" So, so um, those those sort of stories, uh, I think, made these two esoteric traditions much more accessible for readers, and also loosened something up inside of me where I was. You, you know, actually using my own experience in the, it wasn't just dense academic writing. Mm -hmm. So, um, so then in this book, uh, I decided, oh, I guess I could try to write about what it's really like to be a therapist, not just a patient, not just a meditator, but inside the subjective experience of being a therapist. And that's actually the through line in the book. It's the book is, you know, a year's worth of face to face psychotherapy sessions uh, before COVID hit. Mm -hmm. it, happened, it happened to be. Um, but the patients are chosen randomly. So it's sort of like a mosaic of patients. But the the only real through line is my own uh, subjectivity as a therapist and meditator trying to bring these two worlds together, you know, in the ordinary life of a, of a therapist and of my patients. So would you say meditation in some way or maybe in all ways is really Freud's version of free association? Yeah, well, I would say Freud's version of uh, even yes, suspended yes. attention or free association might be his version of meditation. Uh, I think I think Freud, uh, you know, using a lot of cocaine uh, and <laughs> uh, and analyzing people his own dreams. People don't know a lot of the things that went went on with like that that early group of. Um, if they read about it, they could know they right. were they were totally out there. They were the Bohemians, you know, uh, and, and there they were spoke people rules. in. There were people in Freud's circle uh, already interested in the spiritual traditions of the East, you know, uh, uh, students of Vivekananda and Ramakrishna, uh, early German translators of Buddhism. Uh, um, so that was all around in Freud's day. But um, Freud was, uh, 
you, you know, looking at his own subjective experience, analyzing his own dreams, uh, using cocaine to stimulate the introspective quality of his own analytical mind. And uh, I think he, uh, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing in meditation that says it has to come from the East. Uh, it's a, it's a uh, quality of attentional focus meditation. So I think Freud came upon some version of it and then tried to put it to use in, in psychoanalysis, which um, I think can be seen as a kind of interpersonal meditation, a two-person meditation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just curiosity question. Yeah. You've gone through psycho, psycho, psychoanalysis? psychoanalysis. No. Okay, you've never done no. it. Okay. I, no, my my therapist. I had two long therapies, both with Gestalt therapists. Okay. Um, so Gestalt therapy, you sit face to face. You don't lie on the couch. Um, but uh, Gestalt therapy is like a a '60s offshoot of psychoanalysis that came down through um, Wilhelm Reich and Otto Rank, and then Fritz Perls uh, uh, popularized popularized it uh, in the West. I think um, my favorite part of the book was like. I had a lot of favorite parts. It's all underlined and annotated. My kids make fun of me for annotating books that I read. Um, was when you talked about being at lunch with your former therapist, who is now your friend. Yeah. Uh, and I was, it, it, for me, I've been doing this work 20 years, but I think there's still so many parts of me that are kind of wedded to this like very structured way that I was trained that, you know, you don't, you don't, wiggle outside the boundaries of the traditional psychotherapeutic model, which says, you know, you, you aren't friends with your therapist. They have to be you know, not your therapist for a certain amount of time before you can interact with them. And there's all these sort of really what has felt certainly to me in the last few years. And as I've worked on this podcast, constraining in a lot of ways, because it doesn't, it, it's felt like it hasn't allowed for me to bring myself into the room in some ways and it sounds like you you've been able to do that beautifully well i've i've, I've been good at stretching the some of the uh, uh boundaries um but but um in saying that i want to i want to emphasize that those boundaries exist for very good reasons mm -hmm. you, you, you know um once uh, once you uh, start wanting to be friends with your therapist, you know, it changes the dynamic of the relationship because then you start to worry what they're thinking about you. Mm -hmm. uh, or maybe you're getting to know them too too well so that they can't function, you know, just as that, uh, um, uh, not, not uh, just, uh, just as that neutral kind mm -hmm. of person who you can say anything to. Mm -hmm. So, so I, um, I spent a lot of time in therapy with my therapist. His name is uh, Michael Vincent Miller. He was my first Gestalt therapist before we became friends. Yeah. Uh, but uh, <clears throat> but the friendship is real, and uh, and we're both conscious of oh, I was once his patient, but mm -hmm. now we're friends, and there's still a little bit of that therapist patient thing there between us. Um, after I saw Michael Vincent Miller in therapy, he sent me to his teacher and therapist mm. who was a well-known Gestalt therapist in New York named Isidore Fromm. And, uh, and Isidore said to me right at the beginning, 
when, when, when you're with me in this room, I'm your therapist. If you run into me at a concert or at the store or down the street, I'm just Isidore. You, you know? <laughs> so yeah. that, that really mm. influenced me. Because like you, I think, I was always looking for a therapist who was authentically themselves. Yes. I, I wanted the real, you know, I, I didn't want the blank screen. And many of the people, not all, but many of the people who come to see me also really appreciate that I'm not hiding who I am. Mm -hmm. you know, my office has always been in the building where we live. Mm -hmm. um, my, when my kids were little, they'd be coming in and out of the building. My patients would see that. I was happy to talk about, you know, uh, aspects of my life that they might be interested in that might be helpful to them. But I was always conscious about not doing that too much, getting mm -hmm. in the way of what the, what the patients were really there for. So it's a delicate balance. And uh, as you know. Yes. And I think your own therapeutic work helps. Yes, tremendously. So, you're, so you know what's yours and what's theirs, and you can separate those two. Pieces. Yes, yes. But, but you can also let the real, you know, there is a spiritual friendship is, is what I call it. Uh, but but if, if people don't have a spiritual sense, you, they could call it just a psychological friendship, uh, you know, that does develop when the therapy is working. Mm -hmm. So those are, it's a, um, it's a distinct kind of relationship. It's a miracle that, that it exists in our culture, this opportunity to, you know, sit with another person with no agenda to just get to know each other. You know, when, when else does that really happen? So, uh, you know, it can be very special for mm -hmm. the therapist and for the client. Yeah. It is a precious, a precious gift. Yeah. Yeah, for us, right I think yeah. as much as it is for our patients. Oh, totally. totally. <laughs> Sometimes even more so. I, I find like the growth that I've gotten from the work I've done with patients is I, I feel grateful to them in so many ways. Yeah. So can you talk to me about anger as an obstacle to love? Uh, um, I can talk to you about anger as... Um, as a stepping stone to love Martin, okay or or as a um an essential ingredient of love um you know a kind of unsentimental love where uh you're you're not only idealizing the other person but you're learning how to be with uh, another whole person who's outside of your uh subjective control you know, the thing about many kinds of love, you know, when it's rooted in childhood experience, is that, you know, a young child wants total control over his or her mother or father, you, you know, they want undivided attention, they need to be mirrored or acknowledged, uh, when the parents inevitably fail, because who can be perfect as a parent, um, a, a child naturally feels angry. Mm -hmm. So the anger that the child feels at the inevitable failures of the parents have to be, that has to be dealt with somehow. And one of the big influences on my work is this British child psychoanalyst mm -hmm. named Donald Winnicott. So 
his point is parents all fail like this, but if they can be good enough, then the child learns that despite their anger, the parents survive, you know, this concept was life changing for me, for me too, as a parent, as a human, I reference it all the time. Yeah. Yeah. It was life-changing for me too, as a, as a, as a boy, as a man, uh, as a therapist, uh, as a meditator, um, because the linking of uh, anger and love uh, is, is very, very important. Many meditators, for instance, many spiritual people, many people in psychoanalysis are trying to suppress their anger because it, you know, that they're ashamed of their anger. Um that doesn't work very well, at least not for a long, you know, usually the anger rises up. And uh, so um, Winnicott's point is that if the parent is able not to uh, retaliate when the child gets angry with them or abandon, so not to push too close in or not to pull too far back, but basically simply to survive the child's anger, then the child learns, oh, I can get angry at this person, you know, because they're not perfect. They're not there. They're late to pick me up. They're, they're, my diaper needs changing, whatever, what, you know, what, whatever I'm the issue. Hungry. I'm hungry. They didn't feed me. I want exactly. my screen. They won't give it to me. <laughs> right. I can't sleep. Where are they? Can I come sleep in your bed? Um, when, the parent, when the parent pushes back um, or when the child gets angry, for the parent simply to survive, gives the child the sense that their anger is not totally destructive, you, you know, that, that, uh, that love basically is stronger than anger. And the, the, the uh, Winnicott's theory is that the young child in dealing with this starts to figure out that the parent is a separate person, not an extension of themselves who they can not an object that they can manipulate but a person who has their own inner experience uh, you know that is separate actually from the child and that in winnicott's view is the origin of empathy uh, or sympathy or you know or the or concern he calls it the capacity for concern Mm -hmm. so the child starts to imagine starts to know the parent as a separate being in their own right, who they can have caring feelings for and angry feelings for. Um, and so that um, tempers the anger, you know, and um, uh, relativizes it, contextualizes it, so that people start to understand that, oh, we're always going to be angry at the people we love, because who's perfect? But, uh, but, but that's part of life, and that's something that we can deal with. And um, that comes up a lot on the meditation cushion, too, for people who are into uh, uh, a meditative path. Is the anger. The anger and then having to work through it. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of old angers come up Mm -hmm. or a lot of new angers, like, what am I doing here? And why won't this teacher talk to me? And uh, I'm just a terrible person. Why, Why can't I just have a peaceful, relaxing meditation? Uh, and instead, all these old resentments, uh, all these old feelings of shame are surfacing, which is what they need to do. Do most of your patients meditate? 
I don't think so. Mm. Uh, you know, un unless you really start to think about the therapy as a kind of meditation, mm -hmm. then then they're all meditating because they're there mm -hmm. having to pay attention to me or to themselves. <laughs> um, it's a fair proportion come to me because of my books and they're interested in uh, meditation and they want they want to be led somewhere, you know, that that feels safe. Mm -hmm. And um, some people have come to me because they're already meditating, but it's not it's not fixing them. You know, they're anxious or depressed or uh, or whatever on top of the meditation. And they they know I won't judge them for being interested in meditation or for failing, failing to uh, 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 be as um, uh, as enlightened or awakened as as uh, it's been promised they will be. You know? Can you speak to that a little bit and how perhaps our Western mindset kind of reduces our ability to really benefit from meditation in terms of what we may have been told or believed as this has become really mainstream, meditation's become pretty mainstream, um, in terms of what it, what it should do for us? Yeah. Well, you know, I started out and I wrote about this a little bit in this book. Um, I started out when I was uh, still in college and then all through medical school working for a, a, a cardiologist at Harvard Medical School named Herbert Benson. Uh, now, Herbert Benson did the first physiological measurements of transcendental meditators in the um, early 70s. He worked with the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. He got um, TM people in. He measured their blood pressure, their oxygen consumption, their CO2 output. And he was the, he did the original research that showed that uh, a regular 20 minutes twice a day uh, mm -hmm. meditation uh, lowered your blood pressure by five points or so and um, uh, lowered your overall metabolic rate. Um, and for and people who don't know, TM is a very prescriptive method very of prescriptive method. meditation. Twice yeah. a day, 20 minutes, 20 mantra minutes. based, you're given the mantra. Yeah, you you pay for the mantra, mm -hmm. um, and I, uh, I paid for the mantra. <laughs> yeah, a lot of, and and it's a nice it's a nice introduction to meditation. Absolutely. Uh, um, Dr. Benson broke with the Maharishi after doing that research because he decided there was nothing special about the mantra. So why should people you know be signing up for this uh, particular uh, lineage? when any word would do. So he chose uh, what he thought was a non-denominational neutral word, the word one, not thinking about all the spiritual implications of mm -hmm. that word. And then he opened a clinic in, at one of the hospitals in Boston where he taught what he came to call the relaxation response to patients with um, uh, uh, essential hypertension, hypertension that comes for, for no known cause. And he wrote a bestseller, The Relaxation Response, et cetera. So um, I became like his, uh, his assistant for a little while. We wrote some papers together. Um, I, I did some research on the placebo effect. Um, but so I was up close and seeing how meditation was being absorbed by the press, by our culture as, oh, meditation equals relaxation, mm -hmm. you know, and if you do this twice a day, either TM or the relaxation response, you can expect, you know, lower heart rate, lower blood pressure, you should be able, you know, so it, it was being sold as, uh, it, you know, an, a vehicle to relaxation. 
um, which it doesn't always do. You know, I mean, even five points uh, on your blood pressure is not, it's no, it's no huge number, you know, um, which is not to say that some people don't, don't really benefit from it in terms of stress reduction. But um, uh, after Dr. Benson, you know, John Kabat-Zinn, uh, started to uh, use mindfulness as a technique of stress reduction and pulled mindfulness, the technique out of the Buddhist tradition and began to uh, uh, talk about it as a secular kind of thing that also could be used for settling the body, you know, helping with various health uh, 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 problems. So, so in a way, I mean, that was wonderful to introduce meditation to the culture that way. That's the, our culture wants things that are going to work and work quickly and, you know, make us, make us more well, make us better. Uh, but in a way it was being used to bolster the ego instead mm. of to undermine the ego, which mm. traditionally is what Buddhist psychology is all about, you, you know? So uh, I, coming up around all these people, I was always a little bit or more than a little bit suspicious of, oh, this is what you're talking, this is what you're saying meditation is for. And I was much more interested in it in a, in a more holistic way, in a more mm -hmm. psychological way, in a more spiritual way, which is why I've tried to integrate it, you know, into my life and into my work and, and into therapy, not promising, <laughs> you know, you'll see in the book, I'm not promising uh, that, that anyone is going to be healed totally but that how, how can it creep inside? How can it insinuate into somebody's mind and emotional body into their heart and help them deal with their own in, implicit and intrinsic narcissism? You know, uh, I'm much more interested in talking about it that way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it is fascinating. Does this still happen to you after doing this for how many years have you been a meditator where your mind still takes a while to settle and it still jumps from, I always went in my, in my um, TM training, I'll never forget because the beauty of that training was it gave you the opportunity. And I'm sure other trainings do this as well to process what's happening in your mind. And I'd never forget. I was sitting there and all of a sudden it was like, shoot, what am I making for dinner? I need lettuce. I don't have salad. How am I going to get salad? Who's going to make the dressing? Like it was like this nonstop, like, just flow of nonsense coming out of my mind. And then I was like, oh, why is, why am I thinking about dinner? I should be mad, you know, I should be focusing on my mantra, get back to the mantra. And then you, you find yourself and then it's over. And you're like, God, I didn't get anything out of that because I was thinking about lettuce. But see, it's not nonsense. Um, it the, feels what, like nonsense. But what the mind does, what the mind does is think, you, you know, and you you had to get dinner ready. So of course your mind is thinking about what you're gonna do for dinner. So the the beauty of mindfulness as a technique of meditation, which, which is distinct from uh, a one-pointed concentration meditation like TM, where you're repeating a mantra and when you notice your mind wandering, you bring your mind back to the central thing. The beauty of mindfulness is that you learn to be aware of whatever is happening in the mind and body, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. 
and you note the tendency to judge, to push mm -hmm. away what feels irrelevant, to cling to what feels like, oh yeah, this is what meditation is for, you know? But that's not what meditation is for. What meditation is actually for is to teach you how to be present with the entire range of your own experience. So that includes the chattering mind. It's quite possible to be both meditating and uh, uh, having those kinds of thoughts that you're talking about going on in the mind, but to not be totally lost in them. It, it is possible to be witness to your own thinking. And that's a remarkable experience. Mm -hmm. And to not do what we want to do, which for me would be get down, get up, write it down, you know, start making lists. That would be my process. Uh, well, if you like making lists, you can have a little note and little notebook next to you, and you could incorporate that into the meditation if you really needed to. But but that tendency to categorize, you you know, that's um, uh, the mind is capable of so much more than that. Mm -hmm. So that that's again what we start to see when we meditate. You know that the chattering mind or the list making mind, you, you know, is really. Uh, just a superficial aspect of what the mind is really capable of. So if we don't, if we don't, it's sort of like what the, what the mother, the mother with the angry baby, you know, if we, if we don't retaliate and if we don't abandon in the face of our own superficial minds, but we just leave it alone, you know, and sort of be kind to it, then we, we start, we, we can part the curtains of, uh, you know, that sort of obsessive uh, thinking thing and start to experience, oh, I, I didn't know my mind could be uh, a present like this, could be mm -hmm. still like this, could be open like this, could be filled with love like this, you know, mm -hmm. like what a, what a revelation, you know. Like what you heard today and want to hear more? Wondering what comes next and what it all means? Head over to Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts and hit subscribe. Also, if you could take a minute to rate and review my podcast, I would really appreciate it. Stay tuned as we continue to explore life, death, and the space between.